Hello, and welcome back to Equity, a TechCrunch podcast all about the business of startups, where we unpack the numbers and the nuance behind the headlines. This is Alex. We are recording this on a Twitter space on Friday afternoon, and I have dragooned onto the podcast my my friend and uh, someone that I've known for a long time in the tech scene, Anshu Sharma. Anshu, hello. How are you? Hey, Alex. Anshu, if you don't know him, former Salesforce VP, former Storm Ventures venture partner, which is actually where we first met, uh, currently co-founder, sorry, just founder and CEO at Skyflow. And uh, I dug through his LinkedIn and apparently he even wrote code for Oracle in the 90s. So Anshu, you've been around for, what is it now, three, three or four tech cycles? Yes. I have seen the times when people said Java is the future. And we're here today because whenever I notice that the stock market's going down and do a tweet saying, look at this sell-off, Andrew jumps into my, my Twitter mentions and goes, yes, but if you look at a 10-year chart of Salesforce's revenue growth, all of that's meaningless noise. So Andrew, what I want to do is set up the conventional wisdom about what's going on, and then I want to get your reaction to it. But as far as I can tell, there is, in general, an expectation that as interest rates rise, that there will be a decline in the value of certain high growth assets. And in our little world of technology, it appears to be the thesis that people mostly expect that as the Fed tightens this year monetary policy, that a lot of companies that enjoyed a time in the sun in the last couple of years will see their values decline. And you find issue with this conventional wisdom. So I want to let you kind of lay out your thesis, which I think you're calling the uh, dis the DCF valuation fallacy. So walk us through what that means and why it matters. I always start with first principles. You know, my, my hero is Elon Musk. You know, when he has to answer a question whether or not electric cars are feasible. He doesn't say like, look around and say, what did people say 10 years ago? He goes like, well, how much does lithium cost? I think same way, if you think about what is a growth company and why do we project this discounted cash flow? What does it mean? All of that comes together. Uh, I think the best way to explain all of this to me personally is to take some specific examples. And you can take metaphorical examples, like you know, if you bought a piece of land and you need to build a house on it, but you can also take real world examples like a growth company like Intel in 1980s or 90s, right? So the primary thesis of this whole thing that I think I agree with, you agree with, most people agree with is in order to build a company or frankly, a building of condos or a home, you often need to borrow money, invest it in an asset, which over time gains in value and then starts paying you some cash flows. And therefore, if I'm trying to build uh, a condo building in Miami to help Keitra Boy buy one more condo there, uh, I need to assess what will be the future cash flows from this because I'm looking to buy land and take a loan, right? Similarly, when you're investing in a company uh, that produces, let's say, semiconductor chips, uh, memory chips, you know, NVIDIA, sure, Intel. Sure. You need to ask like, hey, how much money do you need to grow this company? And the answer often is like, well, it's going to cost me $5 billion to build a factory. If I build this factory, I'll produce $4 billion worth of chips every year. And if my gross margins are 8%, then if the interest rates are 4%, then my net profit after paying for the taxes and paying for the interest rate is going to be, ta-da, a billion dollars a year or negative billion dollars a year. And sure. that's really what the question boils down to. 
is this a profitable investment you're making in a company? Because a company is nothing but a sum of assets that it's investing in. So when Amazon is buying planes right now to do prime air, they're essentially you know, doing the same as what Intel did 30 years ago. So on this, everybody has agreement. Where this disagreement starts and where I question the whole thesis a little bit is, if you think about it, um, if you are actually investing in a company like Intel or NVIDIA in 1980s or 90s, they are actually quite interest rate sensitive uh, because if I have to borrow at 10% versus 5%, I need to make a lot more money per chip. And a lot of these chips, like memory chips, even microprocessors, used to be commodity. So it's very yeah. competitive. You can't always raise prices. So companies of that ilk, interest rates going up can be detrimental, even more so for companies that build factories and cars and such. So we are all in agreement on that. So Andre, just to summarize at this point in time, for tech companies of the older days, when it was much more of a hardware focused world, the cost of money would more directly say impact their results. Ergo, the valuations of the company, what they're worth was in fact somewhat tied or at least variable by interest rates in the broader economy. Is this a good investment in terms of money back? And then there's a second part of this, which is what is the terminal value of this asset? As in, how much will this be worth you know, in the next 20 years? When let's say, I, let's say I buy this company, hold it for 10 years and sell it off. You know, am I net profitable or loss, basically? Yeah. It's very similar to asking question, if I bought a condo in Miami, rented it for 10 years, at some point I'll sell it off. You know, it's not sufficient that I make money along the way. I also have to be able to recoup my money. So that's basically what discounted cash flow analysis does. Sure. DCF is a formula which says, look, let's model the earnings for a company like Salesforce, IBM, Oracle, Intel. But in order to make these projections, we have to come up with some estimates of the cost of capital. There's a term called weighted average cost of capital, which basically is a simple way of saying, how much does money cost for you, right? And that formula has something that essentially ties to interest rates, although these yeah. interest rates are the interest rates for the next 20 years or a decade or whatever long your time horizon is. WACC, or the weighted average cost of capital, you have to forecast and project. So essentially, if rates are going up, you're going to assume that the weighted average cost of capital will rise over time, which means that the value of a future cash flow has a little bit less value today. And the sharper their rates get, the higher that um, relationship kind of goes, if you will. So far, everybody kind of more or less agrees. Now the kicker comes in, which is the fallacy. This is the fallacy part. So the part that's fallacy, in my opinion, is the following. Uh, when you take this formula, and you know, if you look at a model from Goldman Sachs analyst or Morgan Stanley, they have literally have spreadsheets. You plug in some numbers in spreadsheets. Spreadsheets require inputs. One of the input in the spreadsheet is something called the interest rate. You change interest rates from 2% to 3%. Often a spreadsheet will sp you know, throw out a number that could be like, hey, instead of the value of the stock being $300, it should be $100. Sure. And that's how people say, hey, when I change this value in my spreadsheet, the number that comes up for the DCF value of the stock is half, even when the interest rate is going by 1%, which makes sense if you believe spreadsheets are the real world. 
I think Charlie Munger uh, and Warren Buffett are famous for talking about there's models and spreadsheets and then there's the real world. And I think that's where I go the Munger, uh, Warren Buffett way, which is spreadsheets are not reality. Just like a Black-Scholes formula doesn't really tell you the price of your stock option, no matter what it says, for accounting purposes, we use that. But nobody thinks you know, a 10-year equity option in Netflix is worth only $12 because Black-Scholes says so. So we have to now take the spreadsheet answer and compare it to the real world. And so how do we come up with our answer? Well, I say, let's start with something as simple as looking back. We have a time machine. We can go back in time and ask a very simple question. Let's say 2010 or 2000 or 1990, you had an opportunity to invest in a growth company. In those days, that would be Microsoft. In 2010, that would be Salesforce. And today that might mean Twilio and Okta. And if you go back in time and look at the interest rates, sometimes they were at 4%, sometimes they were at 2%. Would you have really been better off investing in GE over Microsoft in 1990? Would you have really been better off investing in IBM over Salesforce in 2010? To me, the answer is very, very clear. All of my intuition tells me that's not true because the companies that we're talking about, the high growth companies, their earnings power is determined much more by their growth rates yes. than by the interest rates. Yes. So this is where we begin to apply all this economic theory kind of to the, the present day and what we're seeing in the market. And, and so my read on you of, of how your argument interacts with the stock market as we care about it today, and therefore the value of technology companies, therefore the value of startups, our little world, is that companies that have either uh, very rapid growth or that are incredibly asset light and therefore not dependent on debt in any capacity are going to have the least real world impact on a changing monetary environment. Ergo, as rates go up, their business won't really be changed too much. Even if people are modeling out their valuations differently, the asset itself is still kind of quote, quote, worth more than you might think. So it's not something to be too worried about because in time it'll all shake out fairly. So is this just kind of the, the demand that we take a longer view on things? Let me do you one better and simplify Please. it even more. Yes. Um, if, if we were real estate investors, it would be the equivalent of saying all that matters is location, location, location. So if you're buying property in New York and interest rates are 3% versus 5%, you'll be just okay because you picked a great asset that has long-term appreciating value. Yes. And it almost doesn't matter what the interest rates are. On the other hand, if you bought a piece of land 40 miles from Sacramento or 60 miles from New Jersey, it really matters what the interest rates are doing because nobody really needs that piece of land other than other speculators. So I call it the buying a house in New York versus buying a condo in Miami problem. Condos in Miami, a lot of them are empty. Nobody lives them. They're just trading chips. And so speculators are oftentimes like, hey, I can easily double my money, triple my money. So it's similar way, I think in the stock market, we have people who are really buying the house as in they want to invest in a company like Amazon or Salesforce because they understand the business the value of subscriptions, the fundamental shifts that are going on. 
the fact that as we move to the cloud, Snowflake just gets more and more powerful. And if you understand those things, it's kind of like understanding why New York or Bay Area just keep growing in yeah. home price values because there is an asset there that's appreciating in true value versus a speculator's part. Completing your analogy here a little bit, I think in this in this setup, the the high growth company is the New York property, and the slower growing company is the more interest rate sensitive, uh, speculative Miami property. It's actually two kinds of companies, and I think this is where the confusion comes in. Okay. So, high growth companies that are real businesses that have real cash flows, at least in the near future, I think are the New York hotels. Right, okay. it's the thing you buy on Monopoly. There's two other kinds of companies actually that you need to be worried about. One is companies that have no growth. You know, IBM stock line has been flat for the last 20 years. Oracle stock line has been flat for the last 10 years. These companies are similar to cities whose population is neither going up nor going down. They're safe, but they're not going anywhere. And then there is the Miami condos, which is companies like. Mile, what's the name of the company, the insurance company? Oh, Lemonade, Metro, Met, Metro, Metro Mile. Mile. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of companies that really don't have a real business model that I can sense. They are, you know, they have these top line numbers that don't really translate into any profits. And to me, those are the three categories of assets. And I think the fundamental confusion is people are mixing fake high growth companies with real profitable high growth companies. So high quality high growth companies is the companies that I'm advocating for. And what I'm saying is when interest rates go up, they don't get hurt. In fact, they become even more valuable. So an example of this actually came up this week because Databricks announced that they crossed the 800 million ARR mark in 2021, and they closed the year growing 80% plus or minus. Now, I had spoken to the CEO of Databricks uh, last, I think it was August when they raised their last round. And I was like, look, this new valuation is huge. You know, you have a lot of pressure on you. He goes, oh, I'm not worried about it. And I was like, okay, why? And he was like, look, if the market changes, we'll just grow into it. So it's going to be okay. Now, my, my take on this is that's great. If you happen to be the CEO of a company growing at 80% to 800 million ARR, that is so the exception that I think we need to figure out where the lines are. So when you talk about high quality, high growth companies, cool, where's the line? Like what is the standard above which a company is growing quickly enough that a changing monetary environment, rising interest rates doesn't really matter? I wish there was a simple answer and this is why people get paid to invest. This is why VCs <laughs> will always have jobs and VCs who want simple answers implode. Like we were joking about some VC firms earlier. From my perspective, when I'm looking at investing in companies that are larger, which is typically public companies, I'm looking at a growth rate of at least 25% or higher mm -hmm. and really good gross margins, right? A company like Twilio has 60% gross margins, growing at 25, 30% plus, great business, gushing cash, it's gonna just do fine. Similarly, there are companies that are growing who don't have any profits and that always suffer. And I think that those have fallen down more. I think when it gets tricky, and this is the part I think what you're alluding to is, how do you know if Skyflow is the next Twilio or is Skyflow the next Lemonade? And I, that's the job that we as VCs and investors and me as a founder have. 
I have to convince some investors that Skyflow looks more like Snowflake and less like a company that's basically going to end up being a commodity business, cloud eras of the world, hot and works of the world. And I think this is where, as much as we want to brush over the technology part of it, it really does come down to technology and innovation. I've been ranting about this for 10 plus years that if you are, you know, if you're connecting a bike owner to a guy who wants to rent a bike for half an hour, there is no marketplace and there is no technology. Those companies will never make money. On the other hand, if you have a self-driving car machine, even if it's working only half the time, you have real innovation. I think we want to have a simple answer, but the reality is there are technology companies that truly have a technical edge. Yeah. I know people in New York often don't believe that, the hedge fund investors and stuff. To them, Twilio and Agora look the same, Fastly and Cloudflare look the same, but the results again and again prove that it's not the case. And it's been true for decades. Oracle killed every other database company. There used to be 30, 40 database companies that all had SQL. So I think quality of innovation, quality of team, quality of product really, really matters in any company that's pre-IPO. And I think the way that we could maybe measure those squishy points, because it's hard to put a, a firm number on human capital or on kind of like future pipeline feature capabilities. But I think that gross margins do indicate pricing leverage, which indicates that a product actually is better. And I think that growth is the combination of better product and good execution, which is kind of how you can measure human talent again. So what we've really figured out thus far, Anshu, is this breaking fact that high growth, high margin startups are valuable. Um, <laughs> so what I, want, what I want to do is I want to work backwards from your point about public companies. You were thinking about Look, if you're public, growing more than 25% of the year, probably in the right zone. What does that translate back to for earlier stage companies? So if I know that I, when I go public, I want to be growing at 25% per year, how fast do I have to be growing at like my series A and B levels to ensure that I'm on the right trajectory so that the macro environment doesn't show up and bite me in the ass? I have a dividing line here between companies that are pre $10 million in ERR and post $10 million in ERR. Okay. Between 10 and 100 million, which is not quite IPO, but you're big enough, the growth numbers really matter. So there it's this classic, you have to be either doubling or tripling year over year. If I look at inside my portfolio as an investor, Vercato's of the world, Algolia's of the world, Razorpay's of the world, this is killing it because they're all growing at these very, very high multiples year after year, right? And I think that's why the market actually understands that. And that's why a lot of late stage investors can move earlier in the cycle and they've all started investing in companies that have more than 10 million yara. I think where it breaks down completely, and we wish we had a numerical answer to this question, is under 10 million on yara. How do you tell the difference between a small octa or a small odd zero when they are doing $1.3 million in yara? Are they worthless at that point? Are they no good? Are they only worth $13 million? So imagine knowing everything we know. And I told yeah. you, here is Okta. It made this year $1.5 million in ERR because we've time traveled six years ago. What do you think it's worth? It's definitely not worth $10 billion, but is it worth only 10 times ERR, which would be $13 billion. Is it worth 100 I think that's where the, the 
art of being a good investor really kicks in. So, but uh, there's other impacts of interest rates on these companies, though, that are raising money at that early stage, because, you know, we did see very inexpensive money lead to a lot of cash that flowed into venture capital funds, including your old firm and um, firms that people we know work at, that led to an explosion in capital that pushed up a lot of the investment going into startups. We saw a lot more companies uh, kind of grow quickly. Um, that will come down a bit. So there should be some impacts on how startups are you know, raising money and being valued because interest rates will constrain perhaps the pool of capital. Is that effect going to be sufficiently large as to be noticeable for startups that are doing well? Or is it that going to be more background noise that doesn't matter? It definitely matters when people stop buying anything. Uh, yeah. You know, again, you know, if people stop buying houses as many, it'll clearly dry up the market for you know piece parcels of land 14 miles out of Gilroy, right? But Fifth Avenue, right? Penthouse, that's the question. So the question then becomes is, uh, there is an impact. A lot of companies that are growing, but their numbers don't quite look good, or the teams are not strong enough. What's actually happened is, in the good old days, great investors, um, Sequoias of the world, we used to say Andersons of the world and Greylocks of the world, they used to like be very, very careful picking at a few companies. And you know, usually they had a bunch of biases too. We can talk about that separately. But they would pick a small set of companies. They were the anointed winners and they basically, you know, you follow them. But what's happened is because there was easy money, a lot of investors came in and they started saying, hey, you know, I too can find a next Okta, right? right. It doesn't take one Horowitz. Anshu Sharma can also find our Kato or Techion. And the answer is some of that is true and some of that is false, right? And the thing that's going to happen now is the classic, as the wave rolls out, some people are going to be caught without their shorts on. And uh, it's basically going to expose which companies truly have innovation, which companies truly have growth versus companies that were basically just, you know, building the seventh copy of Twilio. If you're building a seventh copy of HubSpot, you're not going to win. Yeah. No matter what, you know, a blogger friend of ours says, you know, if you cross $1 million in ERR, you'll always go public. It doesn't work that way. The list of companies I have that have gone from one to 10 million in ERR and then died is long and sad. Does that ratio go up when money is more expensive? The companies that make it to 10 million ARR and then flatline and die, does that become a, a more frequent occurrence in a slightly tighter macro environment like the one we expect to be in later this year? So two parts. Yes, definitely money gets tighter because the dumb money starts flowing out. Right. Dumb money, when it comes in, you know, spreads too fast when they see something going wrong, they freeze because they are not buying that company stock because they have conviction in the privacy market, homomorphic encryption, blah, blah, blah. They're just like, hey, Skyflow sounds like another company that I like, right? So those investors will basically stop investing and you have to then go find investors with deep pockets and conviction. So it's harder. Yeah. The question though is interesting is, when does that effect kick in? And that's where it's kind of funny because Weirdly enough, it doesn't kick in this month. It may take six months to a year before it really kicks in because the money that's been raised by these funds 
tens of billions of dollars, they still have to invest that. They have to invest it <laughs> to go raise their next fund. So it may be a delayed effect. It may take a year or two before it kicks in. Yeah, I've been thinking about this as like venture inertia. When everyone's put together a new one, two, three, four, five billion dollar fund, uh, they're going to deploy that because they're getting paid to do so. Like they've set up their fee structure in such a way that will demand that. The question is, when do the LPs get a little jittery? And I don't think we're we're there yet. But I want to I want to do uh, two more quick questions before I let you go on. To one is, you know startups and their ability to weather sentiment changes. Because if what you're saying really does hold out for the more innovative, high growth startups, as long as they can survive, they're gonna be okay down the road. So does this general point about the market not always valuing things correctly mean that startups should hold onto more cash than they did before? I don't know of a single CEO that can magically do that. Uh, you know, all my peers I talk to, we don't have magic powers. None of us have hundreds of millions of dollars lying around. You can change things on the margin. Uh, two years ago, when COVID hit, I wrote this blog post, you know, arguing with Sequoia saying, don't fire anybody. Because I was like, look, firing 13% or even 30% of your workforce for three months makes you nothing. So being reactive on a day-to-day basis is just poor decision-making for somebody who's building a company over a five to 10-year horizon. People who should think about this is, you know, you should always be prudent. Every round I've raised, I've always had like half of my money from previous rounds still left over. And raise a little bit more than you need. Be prudent. Really know when the growth needs to kick in and you need to go hire 100 salespeople versus you just got lucky. And I think it's go back and look at what Amazon and Salesforce did in 2008 and they did in 2001. In the end, they were able to actually attract better talent at lower prices. They didn't you know, run as many Super Bowl ads as they do now, but they were able to build sustainable growth businesses because these things even out to some degree, if you have a bad business, actually it's a good time to reflect. Do I really want to be doing this startup? Because if you're doing a startup because your valuation is doubling every six months, you're in the wrong business, buddy, because it's a 10-year ride and you're going to be really, really sad at the end of it. And then I guess the the last question that I have is just about stocks today because we talk about this a lot you and i have joked about it on the phone we tweet about it too much and uh i think it was uh jeff from ggv and i and you were talking earlier today and so i'm just curious are, are you adding to your personal portfolio of public stocks as prices go down right now are you kind of value buying because that that to me will help cement that your beliefs are not just uh tweets and talk uh, I can privately share screenshots of what I've been doing, uh, but uh, I believe it is a good time to reflect uh, on your stock portfolio. Uh, that's what I tell everybody. The day it goes, everything goes down 5%. Ask yourself the question, which of these stocks would you buy more of as they're going down versus which ones are you panicking about? And it always becomes very clear to me that there are companies like Amazon and Twilio and Okta and Salesforce, whose stocks I buy more of. And then there are things I bought because, you know, I didn't really do my homework. And now I'm like, maybe I don't really believe in open source. And your convictions (laughs) get exposed. And at the end of the day, to own a property in New York for 10, 20 years through a recession, you have to have your own conviction 
and you can't borrow it from somebody else. You can't read what's, you know, uh, Dan Lieb is doing and go buy Amazon. You have to believe in it. Yeah. And I asked that because it applies directly to how venture capitalists are going to look at their portfolios this year. Where do they really have conviction? Where are they going to buy more of it when it becomes theoretically cheaper? And it's going to be interesting. Anshu, we will circle back to this in a, in a couple of months. We'll see what the Fed does. We'll see what the stock market does. We'll see how startups react. And uh, we'll see if we can eventually get the IPO window back open because I have not covered an S1 in weeks. And I'm going through uh, withdrawal. Um, but anyways, Anshu, thank you for coming on the show. A real pleasure. And we'll have you back. Thank you.